0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. You know I love to talk about health, mind, body, spirit, emotional health. And one of my favorite doctors, Dr. Will Cole, comes back to the show and joins me today to talk about gut feelings, healing our gut and healing the shame-fueled relationship between what we eat and how we feel. If you haven't heard of Dr. Will Cole, he's the health advisor to Gwyneth Paltrow. He's a top functional medicine practitioner and a New York Times bestselling author. And he's really dedicated his career to teaching people to apply skepticism to nutritional trends and instead pay closer attention to their own intuitions. His new book, Gut Feelings, demystifies the gut-brain connection and provides a framework to repair the relationship between what you eat and how you feel. After over a decade as a functional medicine expert, Dr. Cole discerned that shame can cause gut inflammation and sabotage wellness through what he calls shame inflammation, which we talk about in the show. When you send signals to your brain that you're overwhelmed, overworked, or overtired, hello, anybody do that? I'm raising my hand. Your body reacts. Shame inflammation can be the cause of chronic health conditions, autoimmune disorder, depression, IBS, and more. We break all this down in the episode. I think you're really, really going to enjoy it. Before we dive in, I wanna thank my sponsor Organifi, which helps me keep my gut really, really clean. I love all their products, especially their green juice, red juice, their gold and their immunity. They also have something called Pure, which is really cool. It really helps with digestion, energy, gut stuff. You'll want to check that out. Remember that you get 20% off all your Organifi products when you go to Organifi.com slash over it, or use promo code over it at checkout. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over Definitely check out Pure. You can put it in your water bottle, shake it up, taste delicious. A lot of times gut stuff can make you kind of gassy. Let's just be honest, but it really doesn't. It really just makes me feel... Great and it tastes great too, but not too sweet. It's just just enough. So check out Pure, check out all their other products. Remember that you get 20% off any order, not just your first order. Organifi.com slash over it. All right, and now on to my conversation with Dr. Will Cole. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming back on and having a conversation with me.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I I am pleased to have you because we get to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is how our body often is the way that our subconscious mind is trying to give us information. And if we're not looking at the way our nervous system is dysregulated or past trauma we haven't healed, our body will often present something, manifest something as an alarm to pay attention to things. Now, I just took a very complex subject and broke it down into very simple sentences. I'd love you to expand a little bit on how trauma, unresolved emotions, suppressed feelings, how all of that often does create health ailments and health problems and difficulties with feeling good.
1: Yeah. It's important. You know, it's something that I see play out in people's lives every day, for the for good and bad, how our thoughts and emotions impact our physiology, our biochemistry. And for the past thirteen plus years, uh, running the telehealth clinic here, and that's really what I'm exploring in gut feelings in my latest book of of looking at the gut and the feelings, i e. the the physiological denoted a, a exemplified or symbolic the gut as symbolic of the physiological system of the body and the feelings side of gut feelings, the mental, emotional, spiritual stuff. And I think we get stuck, we can get stuck at a plateau whenever you have an either or reductive approach where you're not looking at the bi-directional relationship between mental health and physical health and how in the West we'll oftentimes try to separate it as somehow separate, but the reality is mental health is physical health. Mm -hmm. Our brain is a part of our body just as much as anything else is. And yes, we have to, you know, as a functional medicine doctor talking about food and nutrition and these mechanisms from a a food as medicine standpoint and herbs and botanicals and medications when needed, all those things certainly will influence our biochemistry. But it's not just about what we're feeding our bodies with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's, It's as I talk about in the book, it's what are we feeding our head and our heart? What are we feeding our body with these metaphys, I I call them metaphysical meals in the book, where it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that's providing your body the raw materials it needs to fuel, it impacts your mood, it impacts your microbiome, it impacts your mitochondria, it impacts your physiology. But your thoughts, words, and emotions will influence your biochemistry just as much as that next meal. But it's a lot more nebulous, a lot a lot more abstract sometimes to talk about these big, complex health issues because it's more prescriptive and linear for me to say, okay, these foods have been shown to support X, Y, and Z, and these ones have been shown to impact you negatively in this, these ways, and it's more cut and dried. Not to say that it's always, there's still a lot of bio-individuality with that, but it's a lot more linear. And But it's a bigger, more complex conversation to say, okay, don't stress, right? You really can't say that. I mean, then you stress about not stressing or the impact that shame has on your biochemistry or unresolved trauma has on your biochemistry. But these are metaphysical meals. Our thoughts, words, and emotions are because our body at the end of the day is a cellular library. And and the thoughts, words, emotions, experiences that we have will influence, will be the books that fill up that cellular library. Mm. And I really wanted to unpack What is the way, what is the path, what are the tools to start to metabolize stored trauma like you would a food that doesn't love you back? Mm -hmm. And I think that these are important conversations to have because we know things like stress and unresolved trauma are linked to just about every health problem we face as a society from metabolic issues, type 2 diabetes, weight loss resistance, to other inflammation issues, to autoimmune problems and, of course, Brain health issues like anxiety and depression. All of these things, uh, we have to realize that there are. We have to look at the impact that these mental, emotional, spiritual facets are having on our biochemistry.
0: Mm. So let's let's go into that a little bit. How do we start to metabolize the unprocessed trauma, unprocessed emotions, stress that we just have buried, and you know we've we've survived, and we may not even realize that we. Uh, in other words, I think a lot of people think because it's over, it's over and it's not. <laughs> it, it just yeah. because something's over in terms of time, it, it it can and often does just stay in our body and our nervous system and mm-hmm. our cells and our subconscious and in, in all those places. And one of my least favorite saying is time heals all wounds because it it doesn't. We have to mm-hmm. do it consciously. So give us some ways that we can start to metabolize some of the stuff that is holding us back.
1: Yeah. I think first is recognize that there, this could be a component to your health. I think you have to know, maybe not fully know, but you have to know to some degree what you're up against to do something about it and recognizing it, being aware of it, not obsess about it, not live in fear from it, but be conscious of it and have mindful awareness around the thing, whatever that thing is. Because many people will as you say, they will gaslight themselves. They will say, well, it's not that bad. Or they'll find someone that's lived a worse life than them and say, well, it's like, they, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're fine. It's like, so it's therefore like my, it's not a trauma for me. And, and, and I think that word even, that word trauma is used so flippantly that it kind of loses its, its gravity because people flippantly use it on social media. It's like the words trauma and triggered in general. It's used so flippantly that people don't realize that that there are real issues going on and collectively and on a personal level uh, when it comes to people's health. And, And research is clear. You don't have to... It's not about the experience as much as your own individual... The way you received it. So, for example, I'll see siblings as telehealth patients, and they had the same childhood, but received that information from their childhood in a completely different way, have completely different memories on a conscious and unconscious level of how it's, what they even remembered and got out of their childhood. So it's the interplay between nature and nurture, genetics and epigenetics that are at play here. So I think, first of all, not comparing yourself to other people, but saying, what's my own bio-individual Uh, experience with these issues? And how could this be impacting my life? One of the things we have our telehealth patients fill out is an ACE score or adverse childhood events or experiences questionnaire, which we're talking about really heavy, intimate things like, was there physical abuse growing up? Was there sexual abuse growing up? Was there substance abuse in the home growing up? Was there just neglect growing up? And that research is clear, the higher your ACE score, the more likely you're to have chronic health problems later on in life um, more more likely to have autoimmune issues metabolic issues and brain health issues later on in life because it's th- these experiences these traumas these situations are literally stored in our cells impacting the way that methylation is expressed, the way that inflammation is expressed, the way that neurotransmitters are expressed, Mm -hmm. the way that the nervous system is expressed. And a lot of that has to do with the gut-brain axis, which the gut and the brain are formed from the same fetal tissue when babies are growing in their mother's womb. They are grown from that same fetal tissue, and they are inextricably linked for the rest of our life through what's known in the scientific literature as the gut-brain axis, or the connection between the gut and the brain. If you think about it, even just on the most elementary level, the the gut, the intestines even resemble the brain in many ways, but 95% of serotonin is made in the gut, 50% of dopamine. So our pleasure and happy neurotransmitter predominantly is made in the gut, stored in the gut, and it works on the vagus nerve. It works on GI motility and the vagus nerve, which is that crosstalk, that cross communication between the gut and the brain and the brain and the gut. So to have a healthy, regulated system, a healthy, grounded, centered, regulated nervous system and immune system and endocrine system. It's the immuno endocrine system. You need to have a healthy, you need to have healthy systems, communication between these systems of the body. Another word for functional medicine is systems medicine or integrative medicine, right? So we're looking at the different systems of the body and how they're integrated. And to answer your question, how do we deal and clear these past things, that we have to know what we're dealing with, number one. And number two, we have to really deal with both sides of that same coin, the gut and the feelings, the physiological and the mental, emotional, spiritual. So on a physical side, I mean, and that's why I wrote the book, so you really can walk through a protocol from a functional medicine perspective on how we clear these things out. On a physiological level, one example that I talk about in the book is supporting that second brain, supporting your gut health, which is in turn impacting your mood and allowing the seat of the soul, allowing your gut to be resilient, to be able to be properly regulated, which would in turn support vagal tone, which is what is the, it's the largest cranial nerve in the body that's responsible for that parasympathetic aspect of our autonomic nervous system that's weak in a lot of people. They have what's called a poor vagal tone or low vagal tone. And to strengthen that vagus nerve, which is important when we talk about regulating the nervous system or a hypervigilant nervous system, it really has to do with an overactive sympathetic fight or flight stress state and an underactive parasympathetic, a weak vagal tone. So to strengthen that vagal tone, one way to do that and support that is really supporting your gut health. So I talk about many therapeutic tools in the book, but one of them is what's called a GAPS protocol, which is an acronym that we use for our telehealth patients that need it. It's an acronym that stands for Gut and Psychology Syndrome or Gut and Physiology Syndrome. It's the gut-brain-immune axis. And so it's centered around using food as medicine in really specific ways, namely using f- focusing on lots of soups and stews that is really grounding and centering and restorative to a frenetic, dysregulated system as far as the nervous system and inflammation is concerned. So that's one therapeutic tool from a gut side. And then a feeling side, I mean, there's any number of tools that I talk about in the book. Most of them are completely free, low cost, accessible tools, but some things that we integrate into our patient protocols uh, would be breath work, would be one example. Uh, breathwork has a lot of exciting research around it. There's one type of specific type of breathwork that I've seen be very uh, extra, I would say, um, really helpful at clearing out past traumas. Is holotropic breathwork, mm-hmm. which stems from the research around psychedelics. If you look at what psychedelics are doing for people with PTSD and different um, neurological issues and autoimmune issues in some cases, and resetting the system, for lack of better words. That holotropic breath work, you can elicit the similar experiences through our breath endogenously through this work. And it is a way to cathartically clear past traumas. So that's one example. And then, I mean, what's it doing? In part, it's doing many things. But one of the things it's doing is strengthening that vagus nerve. Meditation is another one. Um, EMDR is another one that we use for our patients to grounding practices, to forest bathing. There's so many ways that researchers are exploring on how can we improve vagal tone? Mm -hmm. How can we really impart clear these past traumas?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is an area that I um, really struggled with, especially postpartum. I was in pretty good shape in terms of my regulation and my inflammation and methylation and then sleep deprivation and just, you know, breastfeeding and Having a human come out of you, growing one and having it come out, uh-huh. it really um, uh, activated a lot for me. And I, I know, and I know the tools. Um, and I know that it, for me, and I can think a lot of my listeners, like when you're in that hypervigilance, especially in, if you're in hypervigilance with a purpose like motherhood or you're going through a stressful time where there's part of you that kind of needs to be a little hypervigilant. For me, it was just a little primal. Like no matter, people would say to me, oh, just don't think about it. Just turn off. When the baby sleeps, you sleep. I'm like, no, you don't understand when the baby's sleeping. I'm thinking about all the things that could go wrong and all the things I need to do. So when we're, when we're really in that and it doesn't seem like the breath work or any of those things are making a huge dent, what's the smallest thing we can do to keep ourselves from tipping too far over in the other direction? Like the smallest daily thing, if we can't dive into a full gut protocol or we can't do holotropic breathing, any like daily tools that just keep us from going too far off the edge?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, and the, and this is the, the science and art of what I do with our patients is that you don't have to do all the things. Mm. And even Here's the, the the art of it all is that stressing about the things, even if the thing is in theory w- appropriate right. or we know it's based on data, it could be very effective based on clinical experience, could be very effective. The stress and anxiety and obsession or shame, or whatever you're talking about from an emotion standpoint, this centered around the thing will influence the thing, the outcome of the thing. Yeah. So it's something that I really explore in the book is that, like sustainable wellness has to be born out of wanting to nourish yourself. And if something, and I see this with new moms, I see this with people that are busy, you know, with work or have other things on their plate. It's like you have to be a pragmatic many times because this has to be a source of life and a source of ease and grace and lightness. And if it's not, then it's going to counteract and be an underlying saboteur even if on paper it looks like okay, you should do this, and this would this would do for you X, Y, and Z. So I think the answer for, to answer your question, first of all, I would just say, give yourself grace and, and lightness throughout this whole process, and meet yourself where you're at. Because even if Plan B is a pared down, more what I've streamlined, less like if you're doing less stuff with Plan B. If plan B is more sustainable and a source of joy and nourishment for you, plan B will actually be more effective than plan A in many ways. Because I see people that try to do all the things with plan A, but stress and obsess and shame and like really just are so in their heads in plan A that it is such a it's counterproductive to what we're trying to do. So just, babe, open yourself up to that possibility that plan B, if it's sustainable and source of ease, actually will be plan A. And I think that just meet yourself where you're at and realize what, like, doing something in in the name of your health, doing something nourishing and grounding is better than doing nothing at all. And the body's amazingly resilient. You don't have to have it all figured out and you don't have to do all the things and check out, check all the boxes to start seeing some amazing changes in the positive direction. So I think knowing that and giving a big proverbial and sometimes literal sigh of relief to know that you've got this and it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And where, and where you're at today, isn't where you're always going to be, especially for a new parent. Like Mm. this is as someone that's like has older kids I will tell you that it is like the the cliche of the days are long but the years are short are is one of the deepest truths I've ever heard yeah. when, when you look back and you say wow how is my baby boy now a man child <laughs> to pick me up <laughs> yeah. how does that even happen yeah. and it's like just soak in those moments and you like take those tender moments you have with your kid and use them as medicine yeah, and maybe. I would say just and the inner resistance around how you think things should be can create more dysregulation in the system. that's stress and anxiety. Something that Eckhart totally talks about that I mentioned in the book is that in any given situation, use it as from a present moment awareness standpoint. Ask yourself if something's causing some tension in your body, some anxiety, do, can I change, leave? or accept the situation. We have to pick one of those, change, leave, or accept. Because if you're choosing something other than those three, you're creating chaos inside your body, dysregulating your system, and probably causing dysregulation in your relationships in in the world around you. So I think first, just realizing that power that you wield of making friends with the present moment, no matter what season you're at. But the beautiful thing is you don't, like accepting where you're at at this moment doesn't mean that you're settling for where you're at right now. And you can really be in acceptance, but make some radical change in that acceptance. Mm. And to, what, what Eckhart totally talks about is this, um, the next right action, like what can you do in that present moment? And um, I think like when I talked about soups and stews, that's a very economical, easy, you can batch make these things. If you're just talking practical, like what what is – Maybe I'm leaning in and making one of my meals, a soup and a stew, as a way to nourish my gut brain axis Mm. and to ground myself. Like maybe that's all you do. You just make one meal that's like that. And I'll tell you what, if you give your body and lean into nourishing your gut brain axis in that way, you're gonna see changes. You don't have to have it all figured out. And on a feeling side, maybe like holotropic, going to a holotropic breath class is too much for you right now, but maybe some box breathing where you're just, you know, breathing in for four seconds through your nose, holding for four seconds, breathing out for four seconds, holding for four seconds in and out through your nose is all you can do right now, five minutes. And I, those are sort of micro moments, these micro meditations and making the mundane magical that I find to be meeting your body where it's at and 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 the body's amazing resilient amazingly resilient and you can start nourishing yourself right here right now no matter where you're at.
0: Yeah. No, oxytocin from my daughter has been my, especially through breastfeeding has been my nervous system regulation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. It's just been beautiful. And I love that you mentioned holotropic breathwork. My my husband actually does a monthly, it's called Breathwork for the Feminine, where he does it live here in Austin, but it's also live streamed. Um, every month to takes women through like a two, three hour holotropic breathwork session. And he, the, I love especially women, even women that just come once, um, but women that have come repeatedly, they're just like, Oh my gosh, clearing trauma, having amazing experiences, having people that have passed come to them in the breath work. Just, you know, you don't have to go to Peru and <laughs> be and yeah. take ayahuasca and do this extreme thing. There's there's so many tools that that are, are right under our fingertips. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um a little earlier you mentioned how we often gaslight ourselves. Um, I know that. Gaslighting from the medical profession is also an issue. I've definitely been gaslit by certain doctors. Can you speak a little bit about medical gaslighting?
1: Yeah, as you know, I've been pretty vocal about <laughs> this topic. It's you can't not be like for someone that's been steeped in the autoimmune inflammation world, brain health, hormonal uh, imbalance world. It's happening. So it's so ubiquitous mm-hmm. that it's hard to ignore. It's 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 very. It, It's easier to just open your eyes and see it because it's everywhere. And I would say that um, it's something that I talk about at length in Gut Feelings because the book is really written for people that are dealing with these complex health issues and that know intuitively how to nourish their body or want to find out intuitively how to nourish their body but are disillusioned because there is so much gaslighting steeped in our culture as and it happens we've gaslight ourselves but also it happens in a, in, the, in the healthcare space as well and look there's i think even that phrase gaslighting can be used flippantly and abused and and, and used improperly because i don't think that having a honest conversation between a professional and their patient is automatically gaslighting just like on a personal side of things, I don't think it's gaslighting somebody to have a different opinion. Right. Um, so I think that's needs to be known. I think you can have robust opinions and have conversations and then be open, honest with your doctor or with your friend or with your family member, or whatever. Not everything's gaslighting. But at the same time, what is, as far as medical gaslighting is concerned, is this God complex basically shutting down conversations, delegitimizing, and in many ways, systemically delegitimizing people, especially women that have chronic health problems, where it's you are um, ridiculed for asking questions. You are um, made to feel like you're stupid for asking questions. And it really is. Um, it's so ingrained in conventional medicine in many ways when it comes to women's healthcare, And I, I think that you really it's not, it doesn't take much to look around and say that women aren't – This that's not going to cut it anymore, and it should, we shouldn't be settling for this anymore. People want to have agency over their health, no matter who they are. And the, ga- the age of gatekeepers when it comes to health information, just like anything else, is really going away. And it's threatening to a system, but it's reality we should embrace it because it's actually a positive thing. It's a reclaiming – of something that was always ours to begin with. And we're just remembering that it was our birthright, mm-hmm. our agency over our health. This shouldn't be a radical thing. This is the most human thing you can think of. And I think that when it comes to you know, the amount of countless of story, stories I've heard over the past 13 years of people, especially women, that are dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome, hormonal imbalances, autoimmune problems that are told you're, you're just depressed, take this antidepressant. Or, or you're
0: just perimenopausal and you just yeah, need to just accepted. perimenopausal,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, you're just, just perimenopausal, you're just a new mom, mm-hmm. you're just stressed out. All these well-intentioned maybe excuses as to how you could be having these symptoms despite these quote-unquote normal labs. But I mean that's a bigger conversation of what functional medicine really does that lab reference range is based off of a statistical bell curve average of people who go to labs, which I know you know this, but comparing yourself to people with, that are going to labs, there's no way for you to find out why you feel the way that you do and how you can feel your best. So we have to look at optimal, not average, which in functional medicine, we're looking at the optimal functional range, which is a tighter interval of numbers within that larger reference range. So it's really you have to know what you're dealing with to do something about it. And many people know intuitively something's off here, but the basic labs are ran. And if they come back normal, quote unquote normal, which just means <laughs> comparing yourself to people with health problems, Mm-mm. it is not really giving you the true answer. It is is a very incomplete, reductive perspective on the complexity that makes you you right. and get, getting you answers. That's not enough to just say, well, I'm just depressed or I'm just fatigued or what I'm just having these random inflammation symptoms and there's no answer for it. There's an answer. We just have to know where to look.
0: Yeah. And for people that... Because one thing that's frustrating about functional medicine is it's often a luxury that not everyone can afford. So for people that really can only afford basically what their insurance covers, doctors on their plan, where can they go? Where can they go to find answers? Where can they go to find the appropriate lab work?
1: Yeah. So I have a unique perspective on this, being in this space for 13 years. And I realize that is the knee jerk response, mm-hmm. I think within our culture. Yep. And I think it's good that we're talking about it and shedding light on it. Cause I've seen every variable you can think of when it comes to these things. And I think when you look at the amount of how much Americans spend on their wellness versus luxury items, I think we need to start there. I think that many times Americans won't flinch when it comes to making car payments or buying the latest iPhone or going on vacation or racking up credit card debt to buy material things. But we have, we, we have this knee-jerk reaction when it comes to wellness. And because we expect the insurance industry, we expect the state to pay for what is ultimately ours. And I think that there's a priority Already problem and less of a price problem in most cases. There are extenuating circumstances, there are exceptions to what I'm saying here, and there are people that we need to do better to make functional medicine more accessible and more affordable to more people. But I have to say, the predominance of people who make that claim that functional medicine is just for the elite and it's just for wealthy people, and I can't do anything, they're the same people that I see not flinch at at buying material things and living that American life, which is all about image and not about substance and wellness. So I would just want to shift people's awareness to that because as somebody Mm. that lives in Western Pennsylvania, I live in a working class, Rust Belt, working class town in the country where there's, Pittsburgh has a lot of urban food deserts and I, it, where I live, it is a rural food desert. And I can get really, when I look at the foods that I recommend to my patients to have, I can, they can get it at Aldi and Costco and Walmart and Target. And these are things that are accessible to people, most people. And as far as functional medicine is concerned, uh, we have, we do everything we can to make sure it's accessible and affordable to people. And, and it's, like the, the payment plans that many functional medicine centers have, not just mine, but many of them are a lot more uh, lower cost compared to the material things that people pay for. So I, I think that it's kind of a misconception. And I look at my past 13 years of seeing people, 99% of our patients are middle class, working class people. But their why was bigger than their excuses. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the difference here is that because I see the people that make the knee-jerk reactions on social media and say, oh, it's just for the wealthy or the celebrities or the elite. They are typing it from their iPhone that costs them thousands of dollars. And they aren't the people that actually do need help because they are there are people out there that have lost their job, that do live in in really dire straits. And we do need to do better for them. But they just happen to, they're the ones that aren't complaining as much. It's mm-hmm. the people that are the keyboard warriors that are, you know, <laughs> buying their designer clothes from their latest iPhone that are making the, the judgments.
0: I know. It's, it's so much easier to judge everyone else. Well, then focus on our own stuff. Like it's just yeah. so much easier. Just let me judge yeah. everyone else. We can apply that to any situation, whether it's talking yeah. about functional medicine or, or whatever. Yeah. I want to shift gears. So we have a lot of parents that listen to the show and we're talking about how important the gut is. And as parents, we're, especially when our babies are really little, we're in charge of what they're eating. We're in charge of what they're putting in their gut. Um, And that's tough because kids can be, some kids can be pretty picky with what they eat. How can we as parents lay a great foundation for kids' gut?
1: Well, I think first is kind of what I said earlier, not like maybe what we need to teach our kids is what we first need to know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I would say first is just not stress and obsess and shame your yourself. And you certainly shouldn't be doing that to our kids. So I think leading by example and operating from a place of centeredness and using self-care as a form of self-respect and doing what you can and not having to be perfect, I think is a is a really goes a long way because it's setting a foundation of like a positive culture of wellness in the home, mm-hmm. of nourishment in the home, of self care in the home. Um, and ultimately re- realizing on a practical level, like you would said, we're the ones that fill up the pantries in the fridge. So I think it's, I hear parents will tell me like, like, Oh, they would never eat that. Or, you know, like as if there's another option of food in the home. Mm. And I look, I, I realize that if you, make that shift overall depending or suddenly if your kids are older in age it may be a shock to the home there may be a coup d'etat of (laughs) of parents but the reality is get them on board make it age appropriate make it fun get them involved in the kitchen get them involved in if you have access to an urban garden garden or you have some green space in your own yard getting a garden yourself if you want to go to that level, but if not, then get them involved in the kitchen. Like go to the grocery store, go to the farmer's market and get them involved in the kitchen because you can make food fun. You can teach kids where their food came from. You can teach them not on all the things they quote unquote can't have, which is antithetical to sustainable wellness anyways, but shift your perspective to all the yummy, delicious, nourishing things that do love you back. And I think that's a a place of power and to really say wow how what what look what we get to what a blessing this is to get have not everybody does get have, have access to all of this stuff what a blessing this is so i think shifting your perspective towards that will go a long way and look at a certain point we as parents we know our kids make it age appropriate don't ever come from a place of shame or like restriction at all and and ultimately i think we all need to make our own individual decisions as parents what is right for our families. And mm-hmm. and some, many people like patients of mine will say, okay, look, I set the tone of what's in our home, but if they're at a friend's house, I'm not micromanaging that. Like yeah. they need to start learning what does the outside world <laughs> look like? Yeah. And they need to start growing in and flexing that awareness muscle. And I see that I've done that for my kids and they don't feel good whenever they go to their friend's house and eat yeah. that food that's yeah. there. Yeah. So then they can learn for themselves no this isn't about I can't have that they can eat whatever they want but they ultimately like feeling great more than they thought they wanted something that seems so alluring yeah it just it's not alluring to feel like crap the next day no and it's and I think having agency over your health and being empowered to make mindful conscious decisions and eat foods that love you back I think is a really powerful place but so many people who are divorced from even realizing and making that connection between what you eat and how you feel. And that's the subtitle of gut feelings because of that. It's really an important awareness tool to even use meals as a meditation just as much as you use it as a medicine. And it's a very powerful place to be at because you don't have to be perfect, but you've created a center for yourself that you can pivot from that center, but you know that you know, like these are the things that make me feel good and you wanna keep doing the things that make you feel good. So that way it's not a list of do's and don'ts, it's just this this the beautiful center you've created for yourself that you have the uh, awareness to to make those mindful decisions for your for your family, but for yourself, you ultimately for your for your family at, at the start of it. But then your kids will grow an awareness to make those decisions themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, kids are just absorbing and modeling everything we do and the more we're showing them not it only cuz you can you can eat healthy but not have a healthy relationship with food and that's Absolutely. a huge distinction um one of the things you talk about in the book because i think it's important for people to know the book is not just about talking about what the gut brain connection is and you know what you need to do to clear it but you really talk about our relationship with food and how that that plays in you really deal with the emotions and psychology and one of the things you talk about is shame inflammation can you i love that can you talk a little bit about what shame inflammation is
1: yeah. So it's my made up word. <laughs> to it's describe. great. Yeah, it's a
0: great way made up word. I love it. Yeah.
1: Thanks. <laughs> Just it's 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 my commentary on the research of the mind body connection. I mean, how do things like shame and the things that cause shame like unresolved trauma and chronic stress and health related, food related, body related shame. So it, it's How does shame impact our biochemistry, i.e. raise inflammation, impacting that neuroimmunoendocrine axis that I talked about early, impacting the nervous system, i.e. overacting, overactivating the sympathetic fight or flight stress state, underacting, under under, um, supporting the parasympathetic, the vagal tone in dysregulating the immune system in the form of chronic inflammation and dysregulating our endocrine axis, the hypothalamic, pituitary, ovarian, thyroid, adrenal axis in people. And that's where most people find themselves is dysregulation of their neuro axis. And shameflammation inflammation is a component of it, right? Every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. That's, there's no like Switzerland meal when it comes to how does food influencing our physiology but these metaphysical meals, i.e. the junk food for our our mind, mm-hmm. will impact our physiology just as much as a food that doesn't love us back as well. So shame is, in many ways, it's this junk food for our physiology, but on a meta- you know, mental, emotional, spiritual level. But it's influencing our biochemistry just as much as that meal. That's what shameflammation is mm-hmm. and how you unpack that and deal with that, the bigger conversation of what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about the science around self-compassion, for example, of how self-compassion can really be a tool of muscle that you flex over time. And it's the antidote in part, it's the antidote for shame inflammation because people that have self-compassion have a lot less shame.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something huge on this show. In fact, the the woman I coached this this past week's episode, she was beating herself up because she didn't have clarity over certain things. And I'm like, you do have clarity. You just don't have safety in your nervous system to take action because you grew up in a traumatic home. So have some understanding and compassion for the developmental steps that you missed that you're beating yourself up as an adult that you can't take, but you never, those were never cemented in childhood. Mm -hmm. I think so many of us have this expectation of who we think we should be or who we need to be or what we should be doing. And we don't have compassion for the parts of us that are frozen, because that's what trauma can Mm -hmm. do. It can really freeze us and fragment us. And we can be 35 years old, but there can be an eight-year-old who's terrified in there and who's just stuck. And so some Mm -hmm. of the decisions and actions we're making are coming from that eight-year-old perspective and that is not yeah. always great you know <laughs> like an 8 year old shouldn't be running your life um, <laughs> so having that kind of self that has been my the biggest thing that helps me move even when i'm in my hypervigilance to have compassion for my hypervigilance because as they, my listeners know nothing heals in judgment if you're mm-hmm. in the energy of judgment you can't heal anything emotionally or physically i don't think there has to be a degree of acceptance and compassion and Self-compassion is so different than complacency. And I think in our culture, we're such a do, 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 do culture that there's a part of us that that fears, well, if I'm compassionate, I'm going to let myself off the hook and I'm not going to fix this thing. And if we mm-hmm. constantly look at ourselves as something to fix, then we're constantly reinforcing there's something broken. So I love your perspective as a functional medicine doctor. You know, it's your job to find the parts that aren't working, but I'm when you're looking at someone and you're working with someone, I'd love to get in your mind in terms of how you see them, because I imagine you wouldn't be as successful as you are as, as a practitioner and a healer and a leader in this field, if when people came in you saw them as broken. And I think it would help people to hear like how you see someone that comes in with all these issues. Maybe it's a way that they could help see themselves. Does that question make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, look, we, the body is amazingly resilient and is there and waiting to be, to to be integrated, but we have to give it the time and space to do so. And I love the way that you articulated that is that self-compassion does not equate with complacency. It doesn't have to be. And I think it's actually one of the most active, active dynamic spaces actually to be at because from a place of self-compassion, action that will be in alignment with your healing will take place because you'll be able to see from a greater view, a greater perspective exactly what you need because you will actually won't want to be complacent. And the people that I see that really start flexing that self-compassion muscle and growing in awareness and what that actually means and deepening their awareness of what self-compassion actually means. They want to keep doing the things that are mending the quote unquote, broken pieces that aren't. Right. And ultimately we are always whole, but they want to kind of, um, to take their wellness to the next level, whatever that means for them on a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual level. Yeah. So I think it's such, you know, and, and even when you think of, okay, the realization that healing is nonlinear and there's ups and downs. And I think when people, the concept of like, I felt, off the wagon you know I'm not doing my whatever my meditation I'm not doing my therapy I'm not eating foods that love me back and they think oh I, I I'm off the wagon and there's so much shame around that like I want people to realize like there's no there shouldn't be any such thing as a wagon like your life's the wagon mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's you even those things that quote-unquote don't love you back can be used as a meditation to grow an awareness for next time. Because I think that people feel like they're a constant war with themselves, that it's like, oh, I'm I'm doing good things and I'm doing bad things, and there's so much shame around it versus just realizing the larger goal of this is for me to to become more whole, to become more in alignment with my, with myself, um, to, to however you want to articulate that. Just be a, the, the best, healthiest, most vibrant ver- version of yourself whatever that means, I think it takes time, but realizing ultimately that even the things, like if somebody eats a food that doesn't love them back, instead of beating themselves up and saying, I'm at square one and realizing, no, actually, there doesn't actually have to be a place. There's like square one in many ways is an illusion that you can grow an awareness and and you'll remember that for next time. So you don't want to keep making these self-sabotaging decisions, whether it's food or habit or whatever. Uh, lack of healthy boundaries in your relationship or whatever. So I don't know if that answered your question, but ultimately it's when you get to the other side of what seems impossible, then you realize you were never broken to begin with, that it's just there was dysregulation going on in the body that created this illusion of separation. But the reality is you are always whole. It's just a matter of can we get integrated so you can realize that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Um, I just want to get into some nitty gritty stuff with specific. I want to talk about healthy fats. I want to talk about carbohydrates, which is, which should become evil, it seems like, in this world of, of keto um, and sugar audit. So can you start with um, – I, I remember in college or I don't know if it was college or when I was a kid or the whole snack wells craze where everything was low fat, low fat, low fat, and we feared fat. Now we fear carbs. But can you bring us really up to speed and help us make educational decisions when it comes to fat and carbohydrates?
1: Yeah, so I think having a sensible approach to nutrition is a, a positive thing. That's relative, right, and subjective, I guess. What's sensible, but it's you know I really go at it pretty hard in the book between what I would call toxic diet culture and equally toxic anti diet culture, which I think both are just it's symptomatic of our culture in general. I mean, what's going on in the planetary geopolitical standpoints also happening within wellness where you have these toxic tribal extremes like the left and between the left and the extreme left, extreme right and political stance that's happening within the wellness world too, between toxic diet culture and, to- and toxic anti-diet culture, which both are missing the mark. I want people to find out for themselves, be their own end of one experiment and not let some pontification on social media or on a podcast or in a book or, whatever, on a website, tell them what's right for them. I want people to make their own decisions for themselves and have the freedom to do so and explore and experiment and ask questions and and see what works for them and evolve and be okay with evolving and be okay with pivoting and re- and respecting other people's path that may look different than yours. And if I hung my hat on one way for everybody, as someone that looks at labs for a living and looks at this sort of duality of the science and art of wellness, I'd be proven wrong all day long if this was like the one way that everybody mm-hmm. should do wellness, whether it's food or exercise or a supplement or a medication, whatever. There's a lot of bio-individuality with these conversations. So when you talk about macronutrients, for example, proteins, fats, and carbs, I could think of people that do great with a low-carb approach. I could think of people that do great with a high-carb approach. So they're all centered around some common bonds that work for every human. It should start with whole, real foods that are nutrient-dense, bioavailable, and obviously, we're focusing on foods that love that person back. Because even, quote unquote, healthy foods, what works for one person may not work right for the next person because of food sensitivities and preferences and stress and anxiety around food. There's a lot of mind-body variables to consider when it comes to what food's best for that person. And that may evolve over time. So I know people that therapeutically do well with maybe more intermittent fasting or more ketogenic approaches to support metabolic flexibility, support brain function and lowered inflammation levels for a time, but then they can evolve and pivot from that and not need that therapeutic tool later on in life. So I try not to make too many broad sweeping overgeneralized statements when it comes to whole food groups and macro, certainly macronutrients. So carbohydrates are one of those things that it's, a, it's an amazing fuel source, humans need fiber for our gut microbiome. Fiber by its very definition is a type of carbohydrate. It's just a matter of how much fiber are they getting for their body? What type of carb sources are best for them? And uh, like what's the most optimal way to fuel them? And it's not, it's never about eating less. It's just a matter of how, how do you seesaw, teeter-totter those macronutrient ratios? So we all need protein, fats, and carbs. It's just, just a matter of how much of the three that we need, and there's a lot of bioindividuality, context, and nuance to these conversations. So um, I can think of just about any configuration of those ways of eating that I've seen work for somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's all and down to the science and art that makes us us. And yeah, so that's kind of my stance on it.
0: I love it. The same thing is true in my profession. People always ask me, "What's my protocol or my formula with a client. And I, it's always different for each person because we're in so yeah. many ways we're alike, but we all have our individual things that really work for us. And intermittent fasting works great for my husband. It's terrible for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it <laughs> I lost a lot of weight on it, but I was completely unhealthy. So it, it's just different things work for different people. If You talk about a sugar audit. How do we do that?
1: Well, I, I, that's more of a mindfulness tool that Mm -hmm. I talk about in gut feelings that just for people to be cognizant of how, how are they fueling their body and carbohydrates are the analogy that's typically used in nutrition spaces. It's like kindling on a fire. We need kindling for the fire because it creates light. It's an easy, quick burning way of getting energy, getting light. And that's kind of what carbohydrates act, but there's cleaner kindling. And there's mm-hmm. more dirty kindling and it doesn't make you dirty. It just means you may, it may not love you back so much and avoiding things that don't love you back. Isn't restrictive. It's self-respect. And I think that that's the paradigm shift that I want people to have is that if it's working for you, keep doing it. But I want people to have mindful awareness on things that love them back and things that don't love them back. So having a sugar audit audit is a way to look on your own bio individual level, what does this amount of sugar and this source of sugar love me back or not? And there's people that have—we all have our own carb sweet spot, our sugar sweet spot that we can find for ourselves. So it's an awareness tool to look at your breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks, and snacks, and how, how much added sugar are we consuming? Because if you look at it through the lens of an ancestral health perspective, for example, we as humans are consuming a lot more sugar than we've ever consumed ever before in human history and that is directly proportional in many ways to the level of chronic health problems we're facing as a society the vast majority of people have a massive metabolic issue insulin resistance being the major problem and that exists on a spectrum and it could be anywhere between you know um, weight loss resistance insatiable cravings fatigue brain fog to PCOS in women, to prediabetes, type two diabetes. It's plugging in the United States, it, and, and not just the United States, but Western world as we know it. And it's largely lifestyle driven. So we have to have a conversation, a frank conversation between there is, there's some foods that don't love most humans back especially in certain amounts. Mm-hmm. So sugar is really at the heart of what most researchers are looking at as being the culprit, at least a component, of why we're faced with these metabolic issues, and not just metabolic issues, but its implication to certain autoimmune conditions and the impact that it has on the microbiome, which is where 75% of the immune system resides, and in our brain health, our guts are second brain, and the impact that these refined, processed, nutrient-dense, fiberless foods are having on our brain health as well. So, um, it's, it's a sugar audit is just being aware of how much added sugar. And then what would it feel like to have less of that processed sugar, not less foods, but swapping the foods that don't love you back for foods that love, that love you back.
0: Mm, I love that. And finally, let's talk about alcohol. I mean, I think a lot of people justify alcohol, like wine's good for my heart. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's often a way that we regulate that isn't the healthiest or best tool. Give us a little insight on what alcohol does, especially to that gut-brain connection.
1: Well, it's a, it's a neurotoxin. It's There's no way around it. There's no healthy amount of alcohol. And again, it's if we're going to have a conversation around self-respect and healthy boundaries, I want people to have informed consent and make the decision for themselves. And Certainly, people can have some alcohol in their life if they have a healthy relationship with it and they feel fine having it occasionally in small amounts. I am not a puritanical or a hardliner when it comes to these things, but the research is clear. There's no healthy amount of alcohol, and the more we drink, even small levels of it, consistent consumption of small levels of alcohol are associated with smaller brain size, which can impact our memory long-term, impact our mood long term, impact our gut health long term. Uh, so it, it is um, I would say one of those things that is so um, insidious in our culture and in certain people that have that do eat better than most people. they do eat foods that love them back for the most part, but they're keeping this alcohol in on the weekends or in the evenings, even like even by all standards, they have less than the average person, but that doesn't take much. That doesn't take much. Comparing yourself to someone who drinks more to give yourself a pat on the back, look at your own bioindividuality, because we all have different levels of to how much stress we can handle when it comes to the stress that alcohol can play, just like any other stress. So I've seen so many cases that people that go 30 days, 60 days as an experiment, their own N of one experiment how does this make me feel? Brain fog is lifted, energy is lifted, digestion is improved, inflammation comes down, the metabolism is more efficient. All these things can happen just from cutting out that random drink that you think isn't that big of a deal. You don't really know how big or how little of a deal it is until you take a break from it. So I would just encourage people to, try to see. And that's just on a physiological level, let alone the feelings side of the gut feelings conversation when it comes to alcohol is people really are doing that. Some, some people will drink for, you know, they're, they're numbing or distracting or dealing with that background anxiety or dealing with that dysregulated nervous system. And they it's, it's delaying them actually doing the work to deal with the problem in the first place. Like if if there is a dysregulated nervous system, instead of running from it, distracting yourself from it and numbing yourself from it, how about when the time's right, going to the dark spaces to deal with it so you don't need a substance to feel more like yourself?
0: Yeah, it's, it's so true. You know, I'm not, I don't drink a lot of alcohol at all. And if I do, when I do the next day, I'm just like, oh, man, this is depressing. This is a depressant. This is not something yeah. that makes me feel better. And I think the more you drink, the less you notice those things. But if, you, like you said, you take a break from it, whether it be alcohol or dessert after dinner or scrolling through Instagram and comparing yourself to somebody else, whatever your thing is, give yourself some space from it and just just notice a difference. So I love yeah. I love that you have such a holistic – approach to to healing because i mean we both know this is a very quick fix world that we live in and when it comes to health i've had to learn with my own health i've had to be patient too because going the functional medicine route at least in my experience sometimes it can take longer and have a few more you know have more effort versus just like a prescription or a pill that might fix something quickly but to me in the long term it's so worth it because you're dealing with the root cause of something. You're not just treating symptoms. And so mm-hmm. we talked about shifting the finan- financial mindset. I'd love to wrap up the interview with talking about shifting our, just our priority mindset of being willing to, because I know a lot of people get overwhelmed with, oh my gosh, I got to clean my gut and I got to go on this diet and I got to, da, 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 da. and it can feel like a lot of changes and that can often stop people more than the financial element. Um, so how mm-hmm. can we shift our mindset around what it often takes to heal?
1: Yeah, I think that's that's why I write books. That's why I have a podcast. That's why I have countless articles for people, too, that no matter where you're at, and that applies to a where am I at in my life right now, bandwidth-wise, and then also from a can I even, like, handle this financially right now. I want to make this information accessible to mo- to everybody. I want to make be, um, if if you're ready to take action on your health, I want to meet you where you're at based on your circumstances. So do the best you can with the access you have, what with what's within your budget. And sometimes it's going back to that that statement I was kind of making to like new parents or people that are busy at work and they're overwhelmed like, "Oh my gosh, I can't do all the things." Just be consistent with the simple things. Just meet your body, meet yourself where you're at at this point in your life and be consistent with the simple things. And there are I mean most of the things I talk about in gut feelings are consistent things that most people can do no matter what walk of life, no matter what no matter what season of life, no matter what socioeconomic background you are, you can be consistent with it. And the body is amazingly re- resilient and when you're consistent with these simple things, you can start really moving the needle exponentially no matter who you are. Um and then from there when you start emptying that that bucket a little bit, and you can get your head above that proverbial water, and maybe the season of your life changes. You may be able to lean into bigger, deeper things when the time is right. But, you know, waiting for the perfect time like I, I used to, I don't have it anymore, but it was the front of my telehealth center for years. It, it was, if you're waiting for the right time, it's now. It was a sign that hung in the front of the clinic. And I should bring it back. It's, it's somewhere in storage, I think now. Mm-hmm. But it's so. Uh, relevant to all of us. Like we don't have to be perfect. We have to do all the things, but can we be consistent? And if you're waiting for the time where we didn't have anything to worry about, where we didn't have any vacations or any like family obligations or any whatever work things, it's never going to happen. It's really never going to happen. We have to say, what can we do right in the here and now to nourish my health? And that can evolve and pivot. We may be able to do bigger, more things later on, but what can we do right now to nourish ourselves? So I would say that's when you lean into books, when you lean into podcasts, when you lean into articles where you really can do these lower lift things in a way, if you will, um, then you know maybe later on in life, getting functional medicine labs will be the right time for you to take it to your health to the next step. I have to say every single one of our telehealth patients, almost all of them, that's what their journey looked like is that I'm not the first rodeo when it comes to wellness. Like, they've done a lot of research on their own. They've done a lot of things on their own. And they've had they've equipped and empowered themselves through these sort of mediums and books and podcasts and articles and things like that. And then at some point in their journey, if they needed it, we took they took the next step when the time is right to run labs and to get an outside perspective on a clinical standpoint of what's going on with their health. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I think that's a good remembering of, you know, what, how these things typically play out.
0: Yeah. Uh, I could talk to you for many more hours. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for yeah. dropping so much wisdom and for making this more accessible to more people. The book, everybody is called gut feelings and that's available in all the places and Amazon and the places you buy. I think most people buy books on Amazon these days. Where else can people connect with you, especially if they're interested and in maybe working one-on-one with you or someone in your, in your clinic?
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. It's everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com, drwillcole.com. And then links to the podcast, The Art of Being Well are there. All the free resources are there. Yeah. And if they're interested in the telehealth center and what it looks like to become a telehealth patient, the links are on the drwillcole.com as well.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Cole.
1: Thank you.